Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. Your support means everything to me, and I love that so many people are taking time to listen to the stories that are shared on this show. Uh, the feedback's been awesome. Thank you so much to all of you who have been engaged on social media, who have shared the episodes, who have left reviews on iTunes. All of that really means a lot. Today's episode is really awesome. I sit down with Karen Croft. Karen was in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement for 43 years. That's right, 43 years. She talks about being raised in Nebraska with an immense fear of the government and then moving from one fearful situation to another when her dad moved them from Nebraska to Oklahoma City, where he served on staff at Windsor Hills Baptist Church, a church she describes as more Hiles than Hiles. The pastor was domineering, cover-ups were commonplace, and the congregation was scared. To give a sense of what type of place Windsor Hills Baptist Church is, consider this. The SPLC added them to their list of 20 hate groups operating within Oklahoma in 2013. She shares what led to her eventual exit from the movement, and after 43 years of experience, whether she thinks there's potential for reform of the IFB. I'm so thankful that Karen was willing to share her story with us, and I know it's going to be a huge encouragement to all of you. All right, without further ado, let's get into the interview. All right, Karen, thank you so much for hopping on a call with me and being willing to do an interview for the Preacher Boys podcast. Can you first just kind of tell our audience uh, how you first got introduced to the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement? Well, um, my parents got saved before I was born, but they were saved after all my other siblings were born. And at some point, um, I know they went to maybe a Methodist church or something like that. I'm not sure what, and I don't know at one point at what point they prompted them to go to uh, an independent fundamental Baptist church, but they did, and that's what I was born into. And so, um, 
I, it's all I ever knew for like for the first 43 years of my life. I've been out of it for four, year, four years now. And it was all I knew. I remember as a little bitty girl, I was probably five years old, um, doing Christian woman classes uh, and being taught how to walk, you know, so that we didn't move our hips at all, so that we didn't tempt men. You know, even as a child, we were taught that men uh, are tempted by women and even little girls. And so we need to control the way we walk. We need to control the way we talk, the way we dress, because we don't want to, you know, cause men to sin. Right. And so um, I uh, was part of a church in Louisville, Nebraska, where um, we had a Christian school there. And back in, let's see here, the state, the state was starting to give the state of Nebraska, or, um, Christian schools in the state of Nebraska, a little bit of trouble in the probably the late 70s the early 80s and um our school happened to be one of them that the state wanted us to take the state accreditation and we didn't so my dad spent three months in jail because they they threw the fathers in jail of the children who were in the school wow and yeah um so they were in jail for three months and then they got out and um, I, did, I really started noticing something was wrong whenever um, my dad got out of jail. We were, we'd been spending all that time in Kansas City because we could not be in the state of Nebraska. Okay. And, and what, um, what, age is, what age were you when this was happening? I was 11, I believe, okay. when and, this was happening. And how was this? So... So the accreditation issue is obviously big for those that are within it, but for those that aren't, um, could you just really quick just explain what the resistance was against accreditation? And then as an 11-year-old, how was that conversation framed to you? Was there discussion about it? Was it talked about quite a bit within the church? Like, what do you remember during that time hearing about, you know, being accredited and things like that? Well, we were told that if the school had to take the state accreditation, that we would um, be forced to learn um, the sex education and evolution and all the stuff that comes with, you know, uh, being in a public school situation. And so basically, <laughs> even when I think back about this now, and I think about the fear that they instilled in us, and we were basically told, and I remember these hushed dinner conversations um, when I was a child, and I remember being petrified because I remember the adults around me were talking about, you know, we're probably going to have to um, die for our faith. They had me completely oh, wow. convinced, yeah, that we were going to be pulled out of our beds in the middle of the night and lined up on our front porch and shot for our faith. Hmm. You know, and as a 10 year old, 11 year old that was terrifying and so that was really the beginning of my journey into being so afraid and into fear um because of what people in authority over me had said right you know and then so my dad got out of jail uh we drove up from kansas city to meet him uh, because 
uh, they had a meeting place in Iowa that where all the women whose husbands had been in jail and their children, they could come meet them, meet the men, their husbands and fathers. And um, I remember the pastor being so angry that the men, they had accepted basically um, a deal to get out of jail if they promised never to take their kids or put their kids in that school again. Well, the school no longer existed, so it didn't matter. Of course, they weren't going to put their kids in that school again. So the pastor was angry because all these churches were sending in donations. And he knew once the men were out of jail, the donations would stop. And so he basically was um, just, just so angry and yelling and um and this group of people and shaming the fathers for taking the plea deal, basically. And then it was not long after that, that we left Nebraska and we moved to Oklahoma City. And that is when we started going to Windsor Hills Baptist Church. Okay. And that was probably June of 1984, I believe. And my dad got on staff as a maintenance man there. So... Um, I think we just went from one very fearful situation to another, but of a different kind, because now it was fear of the pastor and fear of, uh, if we do something wrong, the pastor is going to, you're going to be the next sermon illustration for the next month. You know, if you, if you make the pastor upset, he's going to call you out by name and he's going to basically follow you around and let you know you messed up. And, and um, our church had, we had come from a church with very high standards and Windsor Hills was even higher standards. You know, you couldn't have a slit in your skirt. If you had a button down the front skirt, it had to be sewn from the bottom button to the bottom of the skirt. You had to wear nylons or socks all the time. Um, The women were always, you know, tempting men. So we had to, basically dressed like a trash bag in order to and to not tempt men you know and so then i began to just observe um i went to i went to the school there too i enjoyed the school the school seemed completely different um completely removed to me from the church and I think that's because we could have, we had kids that were from different churches in the area. It wasn't just exclusively a school with just our church members' kids in it. And so it was kind of a different, a different area, and I liked it. I enjoyed going to school there. Church was a different story. It was just constantly berating women from the pulpit, telling them, you women, you're dumber than a box of rocks. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I heard that from the pulpit. Or you know, talking about women wearing pants and how that women wearing pants look like two pigs in a gunny sack fighting. Yeah. And yeah. And so, um, they would preach against any music with drums. They would preach against, um, any version of the Bible except the King James version. They would preach everything except the Bible, you know, to the point where if we, went anywhere else and we were asked to describe um the gifts of of the holy spirit we couldn't describe any of them we didn't even know what they were talking about you know 
Oh wow. And so basically we were, it was just constant um, uh, berating you. If you're not seeing one person saved a week, you're probably not saved. If you, um, if you wear pants uh, at any time, you can't even wear them to bed. You're probably, you know, you're probably not saved. You're, um, I think you had a guest the other day that said that Windsor Hills was more Hiles than Hiles, and it's true. They were. They were, um, if the pastor, if you did not make the pastor happy, basically you were displeasing to God. And he right. kind of acted like his authority was the final authority. He thought he was in the business of calling people to the mission field. He was in the business of, you know, just telling basically, this is what God wants you to do, because he told me. And um, I didn't ever experience any abuse of my, my, on my own. I didn't experience sexual abuse, but I found out many years later I had friends who did, you know, and I At had the, uh, friends. the hands of the staff or was it members of the church or? Um, one, one, one of them was a member of the church. Um, and whenever... Uh, this was someone tried to bring it to light. The staff members said, well, we'll just deal with this in house. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna make a big deal about this because terrible things would happen and we'd bring shame on the name of Christ. If we, um, if we let the, the police know that this abuse is happening. Right. And um, I had another friend that I graduated from high school with. He committed suicide. Because he, well, the story at the time was that he messed up and that he had kissed a girl at work a year before. And a year later, he got found out and he got in trouble. He got kicked off of the, the college singing group. He got kicked off of the college choir tour. And so as a result, he decided to take his own life because he couldn't handle the shame. Wow. And then I found out many years, yeah, yeah, I found out many years later that was not the case at all. What happened was many years before, when we were in high school, he was molested on a camping trip. And when he tried to tell the staff members, they accused him of enjoying it and, and thus bringing it on himself. And that was when we were in 10th grade. And I remember looking back, something changed about him. I didn't know what it was. Right. He just became distant. He became rebellious. He went from a good kid to a not, I wouldn't say a bad kid, but just really troubled. Right. And there was just nothing that you could put your finger on that happened that caused that change to happen. And then, you know, six years later, he takes his own life. And, um, and then like, I, it was less than two years ago that I found out what actually happened. And I found out all this other stuff that was happening. And I was so, even though I was involved in it and I was there every day, I was so shielded, you know, and I didn't know that these things were happening to my friends all around me. Right. And, well, and while things, Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's that's so tragic as far as, and I, I think it was in the interview I did with uh, Stephen Teal, um, 
I think it was episode two or three of the show. And, and I remember asking when he was at Bible college, I said, did you remember seeing anything, you know, illegal or anything that was like that, that, you know, just was swept on the rug. And his answer was, I don't, I, I didn't, that I can remember, but he said, I was so programmed that I don't even know if I would have noticed if there was something. And I think that that's so many people that I've talked to is, is that mindset of, I don't think anything happened, but I was so in it and I was so bought into what they were telling me that I wouldn't have recognized if someone was being different. Like, and the people that were acting different were people that were backsliding or people that weren't spiritual or people that were, you know, sitting. And it's, that's so like, that's one of the biggest things that eats me alive is like, I look back at so many people that I judged or was told to judge when I was younger. And I look Mm -hmm. back now and think, man, I wonder what was actually going on. I wonder what emotion they were feeling or how, how they felt cast out by the church or how they were experiencing some kind of trauma that no one was dealing with the proper way. And so stories like what you just shared are, are, I think some of the most tragic stories is the, the victims that, literally aren't even noticed it's absolutely horrible and then their youth you know don't be like so-and-so because you know he he messed up so bad that he took his own life yeah he didn't have enough faith or he wasn't spiritual enough or he didn't trust god it's yeah right and i remember at the time just thinking these these puzzle pieces don't fit, <laughs> you know, but when you're not, when you don't have the whole puzzle, you can't put it together. Right. And, and when you're relying on one man behind a pulpit to show you what the puzzle should look like, it, yes. it really limits you. So yeah. as, so you're, you're obviously a teenager in high school. You're, you're noticing, was it pretty instant that you noticed that man, this pastor is like a lot more domineering than what my former pastor was. Or what was it that kind of shook you into thinking? Like you mentioned being used to the sermon illustration or things like that. Like what was it about him that kind of shook you up to say like, hey, there's something wrong with the church I'm going to? Or was it something you really didn't realize till like near the very end of high school? No, it started pretty early on. And I think the the biggest thing for me was when he would stand in the pulpit and say that God killed somebody because they said something bad about him. About the pastor. And yes. Yes. He regularly said God killed so-and-so because he said bad things about me. That's what he would say. That's like, uh, that's almost... Uh... Fred Phelps level Westboro Baptist kind of teaching. Right. Um, right. What, what was the pastor's name? Jim Vineyard. So, so that was pretty instant. So did you, did, did your parents share any of these concerns? Did, is it something you guys talked about? Was it something that you ever expressed openly or were you too scared to, to say like, Hey, I think something's wrong. You know, we never discussed it. Um, I think maybe I I hate to say it was the fear because my dad wasn't particularly a fearful person. But I think the fact was that he just he knew too much that went on there. It's, I don't think he knew I don't think he knew about any of the sexual abuse at all. 
because he would have been horrified and we would have left immediately. But um, he just knew of the control and um, the the fear-based leadership, um, how that, you know, God was going to kill you if you step out of line, if you if you mess up and the pastor says you've messed up, you're done. God can never use you again. So there was that, but then there's also the fear that if you leave what is what you believe to be a Bible preaching church, then you're going to lose your family. Right. And you're going to, you know, your daughter's going to go out and she's going to end up wearing pants. And wouldn't that be the worst thing in the world? You know, and I asked my dad many years later why we stayed. And he said, well, I liked their standards, their dress standards. And I'm just thinking back about all of this stuff. You know, I, I had a friend who felt called to be a missionary. He came from a different state. He was married when he came to college because um, they also had a college called Oklahoma Baptist College where they were known for training missionaries. Right. And... So this friend came, became married, and he had given up a lot to be a missionary. He had given up a family um, inheritance, and he felt called to the mission field. And honestly, I think it was just one of those, you know, heat of the moment things where he he got worked up emotionally and and thought, oh, this is it. This is God calling me to the mission field. And so he he sold his house. He sold everything he had. And they moved to Oklahoma City to go to college. And it wasn't too long that he was there. And he realized, you know what, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And, but now there, you're at Windsor Hills Baptist Church. And bless God, you are never allowed to quit. You cannot quit. And once God called you to do something, you are forever called to do that thing. And so the only way to get out of your quote-unquote calling is to mess up bad enough where you disqualify yourself. And so that's what he did. He went and he had a one-night stand with a woman that he met at a bar just so he could disqualify himself. And I thought, isn't that sad that that is what it required for him to be able to to not be in the ministry. You know, you couldn't just leave. You couldn't just leave. You couldn't just pack up your family and go away. You had to have a legitimate excuse. And so once this happened, um, Jim Vineyard talked to him and he said, let me tell you something. He said, I'm going to follow you forever. He said, any church you go to, I'm going to call your pastor and tell him what you did. You will never be in the ministry again. You will never be able to step foot in a church again because of what you've done. Because there was no mercy. There's no grace. There's just punishment all the time. And and what I know now, many years later, that his son had his own problems, you know, messing around with women while he was on the mission field. And this is Tom. No, it's just his son, Paul, was a missionary. And his dad, Tom Vineyard, knew for many years that his son was 
messing around with other women on the mission field and they just kept it quiet. They just kept it under wraps. But if you dared mess up, you were, as he liked to call it, on the shelf boulevard. God could never use you again. You were put on the shelf. Right. And that's where you'd stay for the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah. Um, so obviously you shared that um, you were you were in the IFB for 43 years. So um, what was the trajectory once you graduated? Were you, were you at that? that specific church for that length of time uh, what was kind of the journey outside of this church what and um, if you can just can you share a little bit about like what kept you within you know IFB circles for so long if the experience there was was so negative sure um, well I met my husband in college at Oklahoma Baptist College and we were going to Italy as missionaries and okay. I remember we got married between our junior and senior year, and uh, we started having kids uh, pretty soon after we got married. I think um, just after our first anniversary, our first daughter was born. And I remember thinking I didn't want to raise my children the way I was raised and in the churches that I was raised in, but I didn't know how to get out, you know? It was just... Because, like I said, fear, fear that you're going to make all the wrong choices, fear that you're going to desert God. And because they preached against every other church that, you know, that was not them. And so they're just, you know, you felt like your options were limited. You felt like if you were to leave this church or a church that's very similar to it, that it wouldn't be long before you were not going to church at all. You were just serving Satan, you know? And so I was just, we were kind of at that point where it was like, we want to get out, but we don't know how. So we went um, on deputation. We spent two years raising support to go to Italy. We went to Italy as missionaries. We um, lived there about a year and a half. We could never get our, our visas to live there. So we spent, so much money and so much time just trying to get legal to stay there. And it never worked out. God didn't want us there. So we came home and we went to my husband's home church here in Omaha, Nebraska. And we, um, he got a job working for a man in the church who owned a company. And he said he didn't really want to work for this man, but uh, we'd been home for two months and he still didn't have a job. So he felt like he didn't have any other choice. So he did. Um, he worked for him for four years. And in the middle of all that, you know, they, it was a commission job. You know, you had a base pay and then you got a commission on top of it. And in the middle of all that, the boss comes in and says, hey, we're cutting your commissions by 80%. And my husband's like, seriously, my wife's pregnant with her fifth child. We, we can't afford a cut like that. So he said, well, you know what? If you can do better somewhere else, then go ahead. Find somewhere else. So he did. He went and found another job of the same type of company. And that man who we went to church with proceeded to sue us or sue my husband and then accuse him of, you know, theft and all this kind of stuff. So we went to the pastor for counseling. Like, what do we do? We need help. And he really wasn't any help at all because this man also went to his church, you know? And so 
of five and a half months after the lawsuit was filed. And we'd been going to church with this guy for five and a half months with this lawsuit over our heads. And we watched so many of our friends comfort that man, you know, for what he was going through and how bad we were being to him. And I'm like, this just isn't right. What's going on? And so I told my husband one night, it was getting to the point where we were fighting over who could stay home with the sick child, you know, <laughs> it's like, you stayed home with the sick kid last time. No, nope, it's my turn this time, you know, and it's just, you can't continue in church like that. So right. we, um, at one point I came home from church one night, uh, cause my husband had stayed home with some of the kids. And I said, you know what? I'm not, you can do what you want. I'm not going back to church there ever again. And he said, yeah, you're right. We're going to leave. So we talked to the pastor, left the church, and we immediately went to another Baptist church in the area. Things went well, you know, and progressively these churches would get a little less, you know, fear-based. And um, the last Baptist church that we went to, it seemed really good um, at the outset. And then it just, it fell apart, like within five years of us being members there, there was people who were, I had, I had publicly in a group of women, I had called out another woman for something that she was doing. Uh, she was um, berating this little two-year-old girl who couldn't sit still in Sunday school. And so she was talking in a group of, I don't know, 10 or 15 women about how naughty this little girl was and how she needed to be spanked more and all this, you know, she was a terrible child. And I looked at her and I said, wait a minute, who's the adult here? You know, let's stop because this is wrong. It's wrong for us to talk about her. Her mother's not here. She's not here. And we need to stop this right now. And so from that moment on, I, my name became mud in that church. I was, you know, my friends all stopped talking to me. A lot of them did, you know, I, I, I had just crossed the wrong line and, um, and it wasn't the, the punishment wasn't taken out on me so much. It was taken out on my kids. So then my kids started getting in trouble for absolutely everything. And we stayed there and I don't know why we stayed there so long, but we still stayed there another five years after that. Again, because you're afraid, Hey, you're going to lose your kids. You know, by this time we had six kids and I didn't want to lose them. But what I didn't realize that I was in the process of losing them because we were staying, you know, and because they were watching this. And now my older children by this time had jobs out in the world and they're coming home every day and saying, mom, dad, please explain why my unsaved co-workers treat me with much more genuine love and respect than the people who call themselves Christians who name the name of Christ. And, and, and they, they hate me. And yet I'm treated better in the world than I am in my own church. And right. I didn't have an answer. I didn't, I couldn't answer them. Um, and so it was, we stayed in that church for a total of 10 years. Um, and we walked away in May of 2016. Wow. And I looked at my husband and said, I will never, never, never be independent fundamental Baptist again. Never. 
And he said, you know what? You don't have to, because we will never be, we will never go to another independent fundamental Baptist church again. And we spent eight months looking for a church and finally found an amazing church that preaches the gospel. They preach the Bible. Um, they are not judgmental. You know, it was, it's the funny thing is, is the church we go to is the church that we were always warned about, you know, okay. the one that where, you know, where the, they have a worship team and they have drums on stage and, and the worship leaders have tattoos and, and long hair, you know, and that's you know, the church that we go to, but there is more of Christ in that church than any Baptist church I've ever been a part of or have even heard of, you know, and there's accountability. Um, they have four pastors, and so they're always accountable to each other. It's an elder-run church. And all the things that we were told, you know, in the Baptist church, we were told these churches are unbiblical because they're not independent. They are, you know, they have um, a hierarchy of people that they answer to. And I look back at it now, and I think, well, yeah, that's exactly the way it should be. Right. No, I think, um, man, yeah, there's... I always do this and I'm like, man, there's so many different roads to go down with what you just said. Um, but the, the two, the two things that, that come out to me are, you know, one that, and I don't think I've even brought this up on the show yet, but that idea of this, like, there's this tribalism within IFB churches where you're either in or you're out. And I think that the situation you brought up with um, the group of ladies where you, you know, brought up, Hey, you shouldn't be addressing this. Like you're not the person to be addressing it. Um, one thing I noticed growing up within IFB churches is, is that there is a sense of communal ownership over each other in the mm-hmm. sense of everyone has a sense of freedom to talk about, you know, I don't know how many times I heard phrases like the church raised you or so-and-so in the church. It, it was like everybody was sharing the load of like, of raising the kids everyone was sharing the load of like falling in the line and everyone had to look identical to the other and i think that's refreshing when people leave and it sounds like even the church you're describing now is when you can go somewhere and be yourself and still have a community aspect where you can still have the encouragement and the the positive elements of community without being a you know for lack of better words a cultish organization where the goal is to best who can best clone the leader. And, exactly. Exactly. And so the, the tribal aspect is really interesting to me. And then also, uh, you know, and this kind of falls in line with that is I think it's funny you say it's the church that you were always warned about. Um, you know, one of my favorite um, verses that comes to mind every time that I think about the independent Baptist kind of community is uh, is actually in it's in Matthew and when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and he calls them whitewashed tombs, um, that they're beautiful on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones. And, you know, when I, when I think about the churches, I I remember there was uh, a youth pastor of the church I grew up in and he would talk about the church across town. That was, you know, it's funny now because now I look at him and say, man, they're actually very conservative in a lot of ways. Um, right. but they, they had, you know, they would play Chris Tomlin music and they were a little bit, you know, they would, <laughs> they would, 
have activities where the guys wear jeans and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it was, it was just a different church and they would refer to them like, you know, Oh, they're the skater church. They reach out to the skater kids. They're reaching out right. to like the lesser people. And I just exactly. remember at the time feeling so smug in my little suit and my tie and like, I'm the most godly. But I look back at that time of my life and, and I look at the people who are still there and I'm like, you're literally like whitewashed tombs filled with dead bones. Like you look great. You've got your Sunday best on, but like the minute you dig beneath the surface, the minute that your true self comes out, it's this horrific, like judgmental and hateful person. And it's ugly. It's, it's terrible. And it really does, you know, you know, you've left now about four years ago, but really it comes Mm -hmm. to that point that you described where, it's either you're ready to just completely burn out and you say, I cannot make another step toward this direction or it's the people that do stick around their entire life. More often than not, it's because they have a personality that unfortunately really complements that environment. So you have people who are themselves abusive or destructive or bitter and they cling to it. And then you have the other half of the congregation is, you know, are, are essentially victims who feel incredibly powerless to leave. And Absolutely. so I, I think, I think your story is really interesting. And I'm, I, you know, obviously you still consider yourself a, a believer. You're attending a good church now. What, mm-hmm. what has been most helpful for you? You know, obviously you haven't stepped away from the faith. Um, but what's been helpful for you in recovering from the mindsets and beliefs of the environment you spent so long in? I mean, you spent the majority of your life within this. Um, what's right. the process been kind of recovering or reforming yourself, for lack of a better word, um, since leaving? Well, it, and it is interesting you use the word reforming because, you know, the farther I get away from the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, the more actual reformed you know i become as in calvinist but um and that in the independent fundamental baptist (laughs) word is a is a dirty word calvinist you know but um but some of the most calvinist people i know are some of the best soul winners you know they're not it's not what we were taught it's not the caricature that you were so familiar with absolutely and um i think it's, it's been a long road and I still see um, some of these little elements of that world that just pop up every once in a while. Like, you know, I think I might think, oh, well, at least I don't do what they're doing. <laughs> really? <Right>. That's, <laughs> you know, so all these little things that every once in a while pop up, you know, um, or the danger is to become just like you were only from the other direction, you know? Right. To, to not have mercy and grace towards these people that you would like to see come out of that, you know, and instead be judgmental because they're stuck in it. You know, I've, I've been on that side too. Um, So it's been, it's been a long journey and I kind of think that I'm going to be on this journey for the rest of my life. And um, it's been, first there's like the stepping away where you think, okay, I'm scrapping everything that I thought I knew to be true, you know, 
I'm just going to get in my Bible and see what God says, because I'm tired of being told this is what God said, you know, and this is what God meant, you know, and I'm t- I was tired of being told how to interpret these verses. And when I could read the verse and I would look at it and say, that's just not what it's saying, you know? And um, I remember after a few years after we left the first Baptist church here in Omaha, that my kids went to a service. A couple of my older kids went to a service there for some reason. I don't even remember why. And my oldest daughter was 13 at the time. And she came uh, home and she said, Mom, you wouldn't believe how he preached this verse. She said he totally ripped it right out of context. And, you know, it was funny to hear this coming from a 13-year-old. He totally ripped it right out of context. He just ignored all the verses around it and just started preaching it. And she says, that really bothered me. And I thought, I was amazed, first of all, that this 13-year-old is picking up on this, you know. Right. But then I'm also amazed that, yeah, that happened the whole time we were there. And while I might have seen it for what it was, I didn't at the time choose to do anything about it. I just let it happen, yeah. you know? Um, but uh, yeah, there was kind of a, after we left, there was kind of like a, just like I said, I told my husband, I'm never going to step foot in a Baptist church again. I will never be a member of a Baptist church again. And I still mean it. I won't um, because I don't think there's any thing good that can come from it. Right. And I don't think, I know you ask your listeners all the time, uh, do you think it can be reformed? I really don't. That was my next question. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't think it can be reformed. I don't think it can be helped. I I think the reason it cannot is because they're too focused um, on the man and not God. They're too focused on control. They're too afraid of accountability um, because if they were really to give account for a lot of the stuff they're doing, they would not be pastors anymore. Right. You know, they would have to, they would have to stop pastoring if they actually had to give account for what they did or what they have done or what they're currently doing, you know? Um, And uh, I don't, I don't see any, any help for it. I think there will always be a, a minority or a faction of independent fundamental Baptists, but I thank God every day that, that number is dwindling every day, (laughs) you know, and there are fewer and fewer people who are getting out of it or fewer and fewer people who are staying in it and more people who are seeing the truth. Um, More people that God's opening up their eyes and allowing them to understand that this is not the way. Um, And I'm so thankful. That's awesome. So, so I guess I'll, I'll ask this since this is, Typically, one of the questions I ask before that is, um, what would you say to someone who is sitting in the pew of an IFB church right now? And, you know, I guess in general, but I mean, there's so many that are either completely unaware that there's any kind of issue within the, the organization as a whole, or they are someone who is scared to leave for, you know, for fear of what kind of abuse will continue, for, you know, for being outcast or criticized, what would you say to someone who is maybe starting to question whether they need to stay or leave? Um, what would be your advice to them? Well, um, 
my first bit of advice would be what we, um, what my husband and I did, we kind of took a step back and we looked at where the majority of the children were going, what was happening to them after they graduated from high school. Um, and it terrified me because they were completely leaving church altogether, you know, and um, living lives that, you know, we were told, hey, if you follow this set of rules, your children will for sure 100% live for God when they're older. Well, that's not true. And so we're, we, I would just say to them, take a step back, look at what's happening to the children of these families who choose to stay in these independent fundamental Baptist churches. Now, do they all turn out, do they all turn out bad? No, but most of them do. Most of them turn out, not bad, but I mean, they just, they leave church altogether. And we don't want that for our children. You know, I'm not, we've always told our kids, we don't expect you to stay in the church that we stay in. You know, we don't expect you, we're not going to, be upset with you if you leave the church and choose another one, but we hope you do choose another church. And we hope that the reasons that you choose the church that you choose is because you've been in your Bible and you feel like it most closely follows the word of God, you know, and um, our oldest daughter has chosen to be Presbyterian. And I think that's amazing. They are very, um, they've very studied. They've, decided this is what where we feel God would have us to be we don't go to the same church and that's great I don't care you know I just want them to be convinced um, that what they're doing is the right thing and and that's so important is that it's and this is what's so different outside of that movement outside any kind of group like that is you have to come to understand that you can't force someone to believe something. You can't force someone right. to follow a path, whatever that path is. And so right. you have to separate. And, and this is like something, you know, I'm a new parent, but this is something that I, I, I just can't ever imagine my daughter doing anything where I would say, you know, at this point, you lose value to me as a person, as a human being. Right. And, right. you know, do I have certain ideals and beliefs that I hope that she, you know, you know, as I teach her and as I train her and as I, you know, share things that are so meaningful and deeply valuable to me, do I hope that there's some things that she will accept? Absolutely. But ultimately, you know, I also know too that she is her own person and that, yeah. You know, I want her to come to those things because she sees the beauty in them, not because, Absolutely. you know, dad forced me, you know, to do this or that, or dad forced me to, you know, follow all of these standards and guidelines that he saw as important, but I never truly did. You know, I'd right. much, I'd much rather see that. So I think that's such a healthy spot to be in is to be, you know, not expecting someone to be a clone. Uh, or a, you know, a copy of you. It's to, it's to let them be convinced on their own and see truth for what it is. Um, I think that's really important. Right. I remember in one of the last churches that we were in, um, my daughter, my oldest daughter got in trouble because she thought on her own too much, (laughs) you know, and she was told, uh, you march to the beat of your own drum and that's bad. 
And right. so she came home and told us that. And I said, no, you march to the beat of your own drum because that's what we taught you to do. Right. You know, you have to think for yourself. I'm not going to be following you around your whole life telling you how to think. You right, know, exactly. but that's totally opposite of the IFB circles. Right. 100%. No, I mean, I think I think everything you mentioned here has been so helpful. And um, I mean, frankly, it's one of the interviews I can just kind of ask a question and sit back. And I feel like you've given a lot of really good answers. Um, but is there anything is there anything that you feel like I didn't ask or that you would want to add um, as we get to the end here? Um, I I feel like you know, you've kind of gone through a lot of the main things that I would try to try to ask or try to communicate. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind that you would want to share that you think is important for people to know or understand? Um, I guess the only thing I can think of is maybe um, in answering again, you know, what would you tell somebody? Um, you know, like I said, first, see what the results uh, is happening to these families who choose to stay in this mindset and this movement. Um, but allow yourself the freedom to look outside of the box because we're just so afraid to. We're, it's, there's so much fear of, of what we're losing. Um, and we, we're so afraid of what we're losing that we don't know what we're gaining right. when we get out. You know, um, there's such freedom in Christ. <laughs> and um, it breaks my heart when people have been so fed up with the Baptist movement. And I get it. I was there. But it breaks my heart when I see people leave and never step foot in church again because of their experiences. And it's so, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. You know, it's, we're not, right. we're not supposed to represent Christ in that way. That's not, that's not God. That's not of God. Right. And um, so I would just say, um, try to overlook what you've been told. And I mean, I remember being told, I mean, there was a, a discussion about the King James Version and the first church that we were members of when we went here. And at the time, I was fully convinced that the King James Version was the inspired word of God. And so then I had a friend who had left the church and we were having this discussion and she said, and I said, well, I believe the King James Version is inspired. And she said, well, I don't. And that was pretty much the end of our conversation. Um, okay. But in my mind, as we, as I hung up the phone, I thought, well, I'm going to prove her wrong. You know, I'm going to just, I'm going to go study because that's what I do. If somebody faces me up with something that, um, that I disbelieve, I go research it. Right. And so uh, as I start to research King James Version and I start to research all the people that we were told were wicked and evil and, you know, Westcott and Hort and, and how they, they really were um, of the devil. And, and I remember somebody telling me, oh, you shouldn't be studying this at all. You should just be do saying or just be believing what your pastor's telling you because this is, gonna, this is leading into dangerous territory, you studying this. And I'm like, well, I have to do it. I'm committed now, you know. Right. And so I did. And I began to understand that all of the stuff that I'd been taught about King James Version and about just about everything was wrong. And so they get me to thinking, okay, if I believe that lie, what other lies did I believe? 
Right. You know, and so um, I became the person that I was always told I shouldn't be, you know, the one who questions everything, the one who yeah. who's skeptical. And um, and I'm telling you, I've I've changed. God's taught me the greatest lessons when I was determined that I was going to prove somebody wrong. And sure. 90% of that time, I was the one who was wrong, <laughs> you know? And okay. so just, just, you know, taking those little steps, those little bitty steps and, and don't be afraid to take those steps. It's okay. And God's not going to punish you. You know, God's not going to punish you for questioning things, which is what we believe. You know, and I have friends, I have friends who, who are still in independent fundamental Baptist church. And, and anytime I talk about my church or, you know, stuff like that, they literally will shut me down and walk away because they're afraid to hear what I have to say. And that breaks my heart, you know, that they're choosing to live in this closed mindset in fear and, um, and, you, you know, the only thing you can do for those people is pray that God opens their eyes because they're, they're not going to come out of it on their own unless God opens their eyes, you know. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think that's been a theme the last maybe three interviews I've done has been that idea of, like, just allowing people to seek out truth. And if, you know, I believe that truth is out there. and if you if you the more you examine the truth it's not gonna it has nowhere to hide you know you're gonna get to you're gonna get to it if you're actually really seeking for it and i think all we can do is kind of do what this show is which is have conversations with people from different backgrounds different perspectives let them share and you know allow those who are listening and on their own journey to kind of come to the the place they need to get to and so right. I think that's a great spot to, to end on. But thank you so much for, for joining me, for, for having this conversation. And I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.